beautiful singing. It's good to see everyone here today. Uh, I didn't know uh, what we'd have here today just with, um, with uh, the big snowstorm. So I'm glad you're all here. And in particular, I'm really glad for all the third and fifth graders are here who are at the breakfast club this morning. And so we just started something with this this week for the third and fifth grade students and uh, talking about the Bible. And we did a little review in First Samuel, which has been our study for the last uh, several months. And they were awesome. And so I was just really impressed by uh, our third and fifth grade kids, and uh, kudos to the parents uh, for all your hard work in uh, instructing them. Uh, they're getting it, and they're listening, and they're learning, and so uh, keep it up. So, uh, if I've not met you, my name is Aaron, and I'm the preaching pastor here, and uh, delighted you're with us this morning. So, if you have a Bible with you, you'll open up to First Samuel. This morning, our text of study will come from chapter 14 of First Samuel. So in this time here, I'm going to read verses 6 through 15, but our text of study will be verses 1 through 23. And as you're opening up your Bible, if you don't have one with you, there's some on the pews, and just keep them open. Okay, We're just going to walk through. Uh, after I get done reading, I'm going to pray, and then after that, we're just going to walk through this passage, and I'm going to do the best I can to try to uh, communicate what the Word says to you. So keep them open um, so you can follow along. So as mentioned, I'm going to read just verses 6 through 15, and then I'll pray and ask for the Lord's help in this time. So this is what the Bible says, 1 Samuel 14, starting verse 6. So Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let's go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do that all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with your heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the man, and we, or the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we'll stand in our place and we will not go to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the man of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Jonathan said to the armor bearer, come up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And after that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within as they were half a furrow's length an anchor of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earthquake and it became a very great panic. So that's God's word for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this time. Thank you for bringing us here all safely. And uh, Lord, I pray that in this time that you would speak to us through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so one of the hopes that I have for us as a church family is the hope that uh, we all have, hopefully have, that we want to see God work among us. That we want to see God work among us in such a way that in the end we could say that only the Lord could have done this. So there's a great prayer in the book of Ephesians in the New Testament that simply prays this. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I hope the heartbeat of that prayer is the hope, or I hope is the heartbeat of our church family, that we desire for God to do such a work among us that through our church, his glory, his power would be put on display 
for generations to come. Now, I say it to you this morning to set us up for a text where we see the powerful, glorious work of God, at, uh, uh, hand of God at work, where he worked in his people in ways I'm sure they never would have expected him to work, where he worked for his people to fight for his people, to give his people a great victory that in the end only he could give to them. Okay, now before we work through the first part of chapter 14, as mentioned, our text will be verses 1 through 23. Let me set the stage for us in terms of where we left off last week. If you're with us, you may remember in our passage last week started with the king of, or the son of King Saul, Jonathan, who was at the, uh, was at the front and center of our text today. You may remember how last week he got a victory over the Philistines. The Philistines were a neighboring pagan country who at that time period had much influence and much control over the people of Israel. Perhaps you remember from last week, the Philistines had such power, such influence, that they even made Israel give up all of their blacksmiths. So if Israel needed any work done to any type of tools, they actually had to go to the Philistines, to their blacksmiths, where they're forced to pay like unfair prices to get their tools worked on. In our text last week, as Jonathan was able to get a victory over their powerful enemy, understandably, all of Israel became excited. And in their excitement, they started to celebrate this great accomplishment. King Saul sounded a victor's trumpet that rang throughout the land. However, as we read last week, as Israel celebrated, the Philistines became infuriated to the point that Israel became like a stench in their noses. Uh, they despised Israel. So they decided they're going to teach Israel a lesson that Israel would never forget. So as you remember, Philistines assembled a large army, a massive army, to come and fight against the Philistines. And as this massive army formed, Israel became aware of what was taking place. And as Israel saw what the Philistines were doing, their mood changed from great celebration to incredible trepidation. So in verse, or chapter 13, read that in their worry and concern for God's people in Israel, they started to hide anywhere they can hide. And for those who are not hiding, they simply packed up and got out of the area. Now, as all this is happening, as the people of Israel were trembling in fear, newly appointed King Saul had a small army with him. And as King Saul was with his small army, uh, we remember how last week the great prophet and priest Samuel sent word to Saul that he was to wait with his army in his camp and wait for seven days. And at the end of seven days, Samuel would come to them and give Saul instructions on what he was to do from there. Instructions, presumably, from the Lord himself. So last week, as Saul and his army began to wait for the appointed time to come, as they waited, the longer they waited, the more scared they became. And as fear and panic increased in the camp of Saul, the size of the army started to decrease. And some started to scatter from King Saul. So as Saul was watching this take place among his small army, he realized that momentum was not on his side. In fact, he understood, if anything, there was a growing momentum in the opposite direction. So he became more and more impatient in his wait for Samuel to arrive, more and more impatient on the Lord and his timing. So he decided that he needed to take matters into his uh, own control and take control of the situation. He needed to change the narrative. So what he decided to do was offer up a burnt offering and a peace offering, a way to try to boast morale, a way to probably try to manipulate the hand of God. However, as you may remember, there was a major problem in this act. Biblically, the offering was not for Saul to do, even though he was a king. Biblically, sacrifice is reserved just for the priest. In our text last week, soon after Saul made this unlawful, unbiblical sacrifice, Samuel arrived on the scene. And as he arrived on the scene, Samuel confronted Saul for what he had just done. 
rebuking him for being a fool to disobey God, a fool to not trust in the Lord. Despite all of Saul's attempts at self-justification, despite his attempts to blame shift, Samuel let Saul know that because what he did was so foolish that it angered the Lord in such a way that the kingdom would be taken from Saul, and the Lord would then give it to a man after his own heart. Which we'll see in the weeks to come will be a man named David. Ultimately, it will be uh, David's far-off grandson, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week in this conversation, as it ended between Samuel and Saul, seeming nothing hit home for Saul. There's no repentance, there's no sorrow, there's no admitting of wrong, no willingness to make any changes. Rather, as the text ended, Saul was heading towards the battlefield with his small, ill-equipped army. So ill-equipped that only Saul and his son Jonathan had swords because there was no blacksmith in Israel to make swords to equip the army. So that's where we left off last week. This is a hopeless situation for God's people, which is the type of situation they actually are often in throughout 1 Samuel. However, what we'll see again in our text today, even though God's people were in a hopeless situation, the Lord did a great work among his people, where he worked in such a great way that he moved his powerful and glorious hand and took his people out of a state of hopelessness and into a state of hopefulness which I'm sure he did in ways they never would have expected him to do at the start of this scene. Okay, so with all that as a long reminder of where we left off, look back with me at verse 1 of our passage today. So chapter 14, starting verse 1, where we see Jonathan, the son of King Saul, had a little conversation with his armor-bearer, which armor-bearer was a job that basically did exactly what the title sounded like it did. Uh, the armor-bearer was like a companion for a soldier, who would come along a soldier in battle, helping support the soldier any way he could, including helping carrying the heavy armor. So this person, armor bearer, this was an important role. Uh, this was a role that required the individual to be brave and loyal and trustworthy, which we see in the text. This is certainly true of Jonathan's armor bearer. And by the way, just take note in the weeks to come when we get to David. For a time, David actually was the armor bearer of Saul. In this conversation in our text between Jonathan and his armor bearer, we see that Jonathan had an idea, a pretty risky idea, one that he wanted his armor bearer to participate in. And the idea that he had was that he wanted the two of them to go over to the Philistine garrison, which was on the other side of where they were camped out, to see how they, two of the, those two might fight against them. Now, just think how risky this would have been, especially if caught and recognized by the Philistines for who he was. Right, Jonathan, see, he is the son of Saul. He's the one who just got a victory over them in the previous text. So if these two men, if they got caught, they would have faced all the anger, all the wrath of the Philistines, who did not have reputation for being all that nice. Keep going. The end of verse 1. We read the conversation that Jonathan had with the armor bearer was one that he did not have with his dad. He didn't have this conversation with King Saul. Rather, the text tells that this conversation was kept from Saul. You know, hard to know exactly why Jonathan kept it from him. You know, perhaps maybe this is like rebellion taking place in Jonathan, keeping this from his dad. Perhaps he didn't like trust or respect his dad. Perhaps he didn't want to be kept from doing what he purposed in his heart to do, so he didn't want to say anything. Maybe Jonathan actually in some ways wanted to talk to his dad about it, but he was trained to recognize it's always just, uh, Saul was always too busy for him, so he, he just figured, you know what, I'm not even going to talk to him. You know, it's hard to know. Verse 2, as Jonathan is having this conversation with his young armor bearer, 
And by the way, I think it's safe to assume that Jonathan himself is pretty young, maybe a teenager. So after this conversation is taking place with these two, we see that Saul was in the pomegranate cave on the outskirts of Gibeah, about an hour's long march from where the Philistines were located. Now, once again, it's hard to know why Saul was in this location, why he was in this cave. Perhaps this is a cowardly act by Saul, where he likewise was like hiding from the enemies. Or perhaps this is where Saul just set up shop and set up his war room, where he tried to put a plan in place on how they would try to defend themselves. We don't know the motivation and why he was there, but we do read in the text that he was there and not alone. Rather, our text tells us that he was there with 600 others, which is a number that we read last week. Verse 3, as we keep going, we see at least one of the people who Saul was with, one of the 600. And we see that at least one of them was a character who was related to someone or to a line of people who we've already met in our study of 1 Samuel. A relative of the high priest Eli, of Phineas, his son, and of Ichabod, Eli's grandson. And by the way, remember Ichabod? Remember that something like that means like the glory has departed. This is why he was named this, the glory departed because of what was happening, how the, birth, uh, how the Ark of God was just captured by the Philistines. Remember how that what happened several months back when we looked at that, a very hopeless situation before God was at work? In our text, we see that this man was there, this relative of Eli the priest, and we see that he also was a priest. So our text tells us that he had the ephod with him. So to refresh here, the ephod was kind of like an apron that the priest would wear. And it would be a means by which God's people were to seek the wisdom of the Lord, which we get no indication that Saul was actually doing in this text. In the text, as Saul and the 600, including the priests, were in the cave on the outskirts, we see they had no idea what Jonathan was up to. And perhaps this is similar to what we learned a few weeks back in the parenting of Eli the priest, about he had no idea what his worthless sons were up to. So here's Saul, he had no idea what his son was up to, completely lost track of Jonathan. Verses 4 and 5, you want to take your eyes there. As Jonathan successfully snuck away from his dad, we see that he went on to the Philistine garrison. And as he went on this trip, it was a trip through numerous rocky crags, which if you don't know what a crag is, uh, take heart. I didn't either, so I had to look it up. So it's basically like a cliff. So this was not like an easy trip, an easy journey for them to go on to. This would have been a hard road for them to have to travel. Right? This wasn't like a trip where you can just like set your cruise control on the highway and just like kind of enjoy the scenery as you go along. This is hard. In fact, this week, the names of the cliffs that are recorded in their text, one means slippery and the other means thorny. Right? This is hard travels for them. Right? This is a difficult, challenging route Especially when we think about they're like lugging like heavy armor with them. Friends, this is a dangerous journey of many dangers, toils, and snares that they're on just to get to the camp of the Philistines. This only would have added to the risk that Jonathan and the armor bearer were putting themselves in on the scene of our text. There's no guarantees that they even survived just the journey itself. Verse 6. As a young duel made their way through the rocky crags, we see that Jonathan called over to his armor bearer to once again say, hey, let's go over to the Philistine garrison. You know, let's keep our hand to the plow here. Let's keep our commitment going. Let's keep going, even though up to this point, this journey has actually been pretty hard. 
where I'm sure they were tired and weary. Perhaps already they're starting to realize, hey, this is more than we signed up for at the beginning of this passage. This is a hard mission on every step of the way. So they keep going. And as they keep going, we see in the passage that they do so with Jonathan keeping his sights on the Lord. Right, Jonathan, he's not going on this trip for his own glory's sake so he could brag about himself. No, this is for the Lord. So in the text, as his eyes were on the Lord, Jonathan to the armor bearer, yes, armor bearer, this is hard, this is risky, yes, we are tired, we are weary, but if we can just keep going, if we can keep our eyes on the Lord, trusting into him, if we get into the camp of the Philistines, it just might be that the Lord will do a work for us which I think is such a good model for us to consider this morning. Right? To not assume that the Lord is going to work among us the way we might want him to, but at the same time, what are they doing here? They're putting themselves in positions for God to work through them. Through this long, difficult, risky mission, they're positioning themselves for God to work. In our text, Jonathan to his armor bearer. And if the Lord is in this, if indeed this is his work, Listen, we have nothing to fear. For nothing can hinder the Lord from doing what he wants to do. If God wants to work and save, he can do it through many or he can do it through few. Nothing will stop him. His will will be done. You know, this is like right confidence here by Jonathan and right theology. God will do what he chooses to do and even hell itself will not prevail against it. In the scene, as Jonathan testified to his trust in the Lord, as the armor bearer agreed to keep going, Jonathan told uh, the, the armor bearer told Jonathan to move forward, to do what, that which you wish to do. The armor bearer to Jonathan, hey, let's just keep our hand to the plow. Let's not look back. I want to encourage you here, Jonathan, in this work that we have. And as we move forward, I want you to know that I'm with you. I'm with you with your heart, with my heart, with my soul. Jonathan, as we move forward, I'm not going to leave your side, but I'm going to fight with you. I'm going to be loyal to you here. Just think how easy it would have been for the armor bearer to bow out here, to go a different way. But yet, he stays focused. He stays committed. For those who are maybe familiar with the story of Ruth, where God also did an incredible work, this scene here kind of reminds me of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. He said, you know, where I go, like where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people, or my, your people be my people, your God, my God. Like this incredible encouragement. So this text, after Jonathan received this powerful word of encouragement from his loyal armor bearer, reading verse 8, he says, okay, let's do this. Let's go over to the men of the camp. And as we go over, let's show ourselves to them. And as we show ourselves to them, we're going to see how they respond to us. Right? This, this is bold here. Right? They're throwing themselves out here. They're putting themselves in positions for God to perhaps work through them. Verse 9. And as we throw ourselves out there, Jonathan says, if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then what we'll do, we'll just wait. We'll stand still and we'll wait for them. But Jonathan, if they, or Armor Bear, if they tell us, you over there, come up to us, if they say that, then we'll understand that this is actually from the Lord. And then indeed, he is in this, and he is about to work through us. Now, 
take a step back, this proposal here by Jonathan, this seems to be a test that he's giving to the Philistines to see either how on guard they were or maybe how brave they were. So in this scene, the Philistines, they had the high ground. They had much more of a favorable position. And if they did not want to leave that position, either they were scared to engage in battle or they just didn't see Jonathan as a threat. In my hunch here, that's actually what's happening. Like they just didn't think Jonathan was a threat, so why leave to go find him? So invite him to come up. So maybe perhaps when we get to the story of David and Goliath, where Goliath thought that David was no threat. So verse 11, as the two young men agreed to do what they're going to do, we see that they both showed themselves to the garrison. And as they showed themselves to the garrison, the garrison saw them, and they declared to them among themselves, hey, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And as they declared this among themselves, they read that they call out to Jonathan and the arm bearer, hey, come over to us, and we're going to show you a thing. I think we should read this here. It's like the Philistines are mocking Jonathan and the armor bearer. Like they see them as no threat. So they mockingly called over to the young man, hey, come over here. Come over. We're going to show you a few things. So as they did this, Jonathan calls out to his armor bearer in, in verse 12. says, hey, come up after me, because the Lord is going to do a great work. Because indeed, the Lord has given the Philistines into the hand of Israel. So that Jonathan got up on his hands and his feet, along with his loyal, trustworthy armor bearer, and they climbed up the hill, right, which is steep enough that they had to use their hands and feet to make the climb, which, by the way, is another huge risk for them. And as this little band of brothers made their way to the top, we see that they went on the attack, and they killed all those who came against them. Verse 14 at first strike, we read they killed 20 men in a relatively short amount of land, a furl of length and an anchor of land. And as two young men fought, we see in verse 15 that panic now erupts throughout the camp. In some translations even say panic from God erupts or fills the camp. I think this scene here is to remind us of the panic. Remember how the panic erupted in the land of the Philistines and the Lord knocked down their idols after they captured the Ark of God? Like this is, once again, the Lord is fighting for his people in the face of all odds. And as panic erupted through the camp, throughout this mighty army, we said even the raiders, the top soldiers, even they were like trembling with panic and with fear. And as this panic starts to multiply, we became, it became so great that the earth itself began to quake. I mean, just picture what this scene must have looked like. This massive army, they're all running around in confusion and in chaos. And as this massive army was in massive confusion, we see in verse 9 that there was watchmen or spies of Saul who were like watching this all took place. And as they watched this scene unfold, much of their surprise, they took note that the multitude of this massive army was starting to disperse here and there. And as they watched this incredible scene took place, they sent word back to Saul. And as this message came to the ears of Saul, he also was surprised to hear what was happening. So we see in this text, he tries to figure out, okay, what is taking place here? And he wonders if perhaps maybe some from his rank was responsible for sparking this panic in the camp of the Philistines. So we see in this passage, he does a little hit count, a little roll call. The final, if there's like maybe one from among his group of 600 that was responsible for this incredible churn of events. In this text, as Saul finished up the roll call, he did learn that one was missing. It was his son, Jonathan, and his young armor-bearer. 
Like, he realized that they were not there. It's again, maybe an indication of some poor parenting on this scene. So as he realizes that Jonathan is gone, Saul, Saul starts to piece together what's happening. So he goes to the priest, and he asks the priest to bring the Ark of God with him, where it appears that Saul wanted to seek the Lord, at least in terms of what they are to do from here. So in the passage, the Ark of God was brought near. As Saul was explaining to the priest what he wanted for them, we read the tumult, or the chaos, and the panic increased more and more throughout the Philistines. And as Saul understood that this panic continued to multiply he decided he already had to answer what he was to do. So in the passage, to the priest, he said, hey, you can stop. You can withhold your hand here. We know what to do. We're to go on the attack. We're to seek and destroy the Philistines who are in chaos. So in verse 20, Saul rallied his troops together, and they went into battle, which is a battle that actually would not require much of anything from them. So our text tells us that the panic in the camp was so great that they got so twisted around that the Philistines actually started to fight among themselves, where their swords were coming against his fellow. Right? This is pure chaos. This is complete confusion, to the point the author of the text simply writes at the end of verse 20 that there is a great confusion in the camp. Now, as the confusion in the camp was spreading, the news of the reports also taking place was spreading. So in verse 21, if you want to take your eyes there, Read that the Philistines who had been with, or the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into camp, in short, they're like uh, defectors from Israel who joined the Philistine forces. We see as this news was spreading of all this chaos, we see that these defectors now started to defect from the Philistines. Like they're kind of like jumping bandwagons here, you know, from Israel to the Philistines, now back from the Philistines to Israel. Likewise, in verse 22, the men of Israel who were cowering in fear in the hill country of Ephraim. As news traveled to their ears, we see they got a little more bold, a little more brave, a little more inspired. So in the text, as the Philistines were fleeing, we read that these once timid cowards came out of their hiding places and followed hard after the Philistines in battle. Right? The Lord is at work here through his people. Amazingly, he even used like weak-minded, wishy-washy people, bandwagon jumpers, and cowards to fight. Finally, our text ends this morning, verse 23 that through this great and unexpected work of God, we see that the Lord saved Israel that day as a battle passed beyond Beth-Avon, which is to indicate how far the Lord drove the Philistines out of the area. And for us, to back up to when this conflict first started, who would have ever asked or thought that this somehow could become the outcome? I mean, think about where things were at the end of the passage in our text last week. The Philistines, they had these massive, highly motivated army. They had the high ground. They cut off all supply routes. Like they had everything on their side. In contrast, for Israel, the people of God, like they had a little army. They had no morale. People were scattering. People were hiding. They, they had no weapons to fight with. Their king just made an awful, sinful compromise where he's rebuked by Samuel, who once was the trusted leader of God's people for multiple generations. Like, who would have ever thought at the end of chapter 13 that this is how things would have turned out by the middle of chapter 14? So again, this is an incredible work of God. Only God could do this. Which takes us back to how I started the sermon. And the hope that we have as a church, if we want to see God 
do incredible works among us. So with that in mind, so what can we learn from a passage like this? However, before I get to that, I do think it's important to recognize that this text here, this is a unique work of God. And this passage is a description of that unique work. So we've got to be mindful. Our text here is not like a prescription, how we can like basically manipulate the hand of God to likewise do something great among us. So again, this is unique. A unique time, unique place, a unique situation. However, that being said, I do think there are a few things that we see throughout this text that do fit into themes by which God does commonly work throughout the scriptures and throughout church history. Themes that I think can help us to understand how God might work through us. Right? These are common ways, and that's how I want to end our time this morning. So let me give you a handful of things. This is not an exhaustive list, how God is commonly at work. Um, these will just be things that, are, that we see in this text here. For instance, like in the scriptures, we know that God works through prayer. So in this passage, there's no prayer mentioned in, this pa- in the text. Not that they weren't praying, but we don't see it here. So this is not an exhaustive list of what I'm about to give you here. So, first, take note. God works in, accordances, in accordance to his promises. Right? That's how God's at work. Like he works through his promises that he's made to his people through his word. So in this text here, we don't see any explicit promises of God. But well before these events took place, God made promises to his people. And promises go all the way back to Genesis 3 when sin entered into the world. Promises that God would be good to his people, that he'd be faithful to his people, even though his people are not always going to be faithful to him. In our text a couple weeks back, in 1 Samuel 11, remember how Samuel reminded his people in his farewell address that God promised that he would never leave them, that he would never forsake them. So this here in the text, as God is at work, this is the work tied to his promises found in his word. Promises that are sure, promises that are steady, promises that we can count on. Friends, we can take heart. God do what, will do what he says he will do. He will keep his promises to us, including promises that he will work through us. Second, God works through his people who take humble steps of faith. Now, I keep saying this is a unique story here, unique work where Jonathan and his armor-bearer took unique steps of faith. So we do be a little careful here that we, we don't want to like label steps of faith in ways that we're maybe just being foolish or we're testing God. However, that is a caveat. I think one of the ways that God works is through his people who humbly step out in faith, who humbly trust in the Lord and the promises that he's made to us. So even though the story is not or is unique in one sense. What's not unique is if you see God at work in this way. Right? Jonathan, his armor bearer. Right? Humble steps all throughout the text. Humbly trusting in every difficult step that they took, that the Lord, if he was in it, that there was no way they could be stopped. And for us, maybe humble steps of faith might be humble before God and his word when it comes to like maybe generosity. Maybe humble steps of faith in our boldness when it comes to evangelism, maybe humble steps of faith in making and keeping promises and commitments, maybe making humble steps of faith in how we seek to serve and care for others. If we want to see God at work through us, we have to take humble steps of faith, humble steps of faith, not presuming upon the Lord, but trusting in the Lord. Third, God uses those who put themselves in positions to be used. This actually is part of our walking by faith. 
by faith, we put ourselves in positions for God to use us. And that's what we see throughout this entire passage. Right? By faith, right? the young men put themselves in positions to be used by the Lord. And that must be true of us as well. By faith, we must put ourselves in places. And who knows how God might work for us. You know, let me just give you one example just to kind of tease this out. You know, if we say we want to be like witnesses for Christ, if that's what we want to do, we obviously can't hide from those who are not yet Christians. Right? We can't hide from our neighbors or our coworkers or whoever they may be. Rather, we have to get out. We have to make relationships with people. Relationships in ways that we're making known Christ to them. And who knows how God might work through that. Third, God works through his people who work together. In our church language, connecting. So there's times, sure, God might do a work purely on an individual basis, but I don't think that's common. Most commonly, we see throughout the storyline of Scripture is God working through his people who work together, who serve together, who sacrifice together, who help and support and encourage each other, who make incredible sacrifices even in difficulties that come our way. In the text, Jonathan, he didn't do this alone. It is loyal, trustworthy partner, the armor bearer to help him. And these two work together. God used them in a great way. And just think, they had a lot of hard things that they had to do together. But they kept their arms linked together as each challenge came their way. Fifth. Is that where I'm? Fifth? Yeah, fifth. God works for those, God works in ways where he draws sinful people or faithless people, let me say it again. God works in ways where he uses faithless people to be faithful. So Now, i got to admit that the first portion of my study this week, I did have some pretty incredible eye rolls when I thought about the Hebrews who, like, jump ship to join the Philistines, only to jump ship to, jump, uh, to join the Israel when Israel was clearly winning. I also have to admit I eye rolled when I thought about the cowards in the cave who, like, only appeared after the Philistines were on the run. However, by the end of the week, my eye roll actually began to change a bit for a few reasons. So first, you know, if there's a character in the story that I probably most likely resemble if I put in a similar situation, like, I don't know if I would have been like brave Jonathan or loyal armor bearer. I like to think I am, but I don't know if I actually would be. In truth, the people in the text that I probably most likely resemble if put into a similar circumstance is probably the Hebrews who are willing to compromise and to change teams depending on who is winning or the cowards who were hiding until all true danger was gone. Friends, this story, this is probably who we probably most likely resemble, right? the wishy-washy cowards. So we do need to be a little careful when we eye roll. Second, the more I thought about this passage, the more I realized that one of the great evidence of God's work in this passage is how he grew people into greater levels of faithfulness, where he made the weak strong, where he made the cowards brave, this is the work that he did. He took these faithless people and then he made them faithful, which I do hope is an encouragement to each of us here today. Like if he used the people in the text to defeat the enemies, to drive them out of the land, friends, he can use us as well to do an incredible work through us. Amen. Maybe one more. God works in ways in which he extends his great salvation. Right? That's what he did in this text. Through his glorious and powerful hand, God worked in such a way that he saved his people from their enemies. And this is the work of salvation that only God could do. Right? Only God is the one who could save. 
And it's us, this great saving work of God in this text, to take our hearts and minds. It's what only God can do when it comes to saving sinners from the great enemy of our sin. It was a great, glorious, and powerful work that he did through his son, Jesus Christ. Where Jesus came to do the will of the Heavenly Father. Where Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, to take the punishment of our sin in our place, so that we might be forgiven, so we might be brought into eternal relationship with God, so we might be saved from our sins and saved to eternal life. Friends, only God can do that work. Like, we can never work enough to save ourselves from our sins. But the good news is that through Jesus Christ, God saves. Through Jesus Christ, God graciously, kindly, mercifully, gloriously, powerfully did this work on our behalf. Friends, this glorious saving work of God through Jesus, right? this is in the line that the promise that he made to his people all the way back in Genesis 3, when sin first entered into the world. Right? He stayed true to his promise, where God promised our first parents to send one to be their savior. And if somehow we were able to go back in time to tell our first parents the depths by which God would save them, to tell them how salvation would come through his eternal son, who would die only to rise again, I don't know if they would have believed it. This would have been a work that it was so far greater they could ever ask or think of. Yet for us, we know through this work, the death, resurrection of Jesus, the saving of sinners like you and me, that's how God is choosing to put his glory on display through the church for all time. For us, if we're going to live out our hope of seeing God work through us, through our church family, this is why we desire for the wooden cross and empty tomb to mean everything for us. Right? In every situation, in every circumstance, in good days, in hard days, in wins and in losses, that we might live in such a way the cross and the tomb are at the forefront. And church, may God work through us in such a way that the glory of Christ is always front and center in all that we do trusting that God can and is working through us in ways that only he can work. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your grace and in your mercy and in your power you do work. And Lord, I do pray that you would do a great work through Red Village Church for generations to come. Please help us to trust in you, trust in your good word, trust in your promises. God, please help us to walk by faith together. And uh, Lord, I do pray that through our little church family here, that you would extend your great salvation to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.